that these attributes are attributed to the person of Christ. So that his, what are attributes of his divine nature, to know all things, to never be tired, to never be hungry, etc., are, are attributed to the person of Christ, so are his human attributes. Those are attributed to the person of Christ. So just acknowledging this in the, in the genus idiomaticum um, is extremely helpful for being able to keep the two natures distinct. We don't blur them together and become Eutychian. We keep them distinct and yet not so distinct as to make two persons or two Christs and go the way of Nestorius, but rather distinct and yet unified so that both attributes of the divine and the human are attributed and, and granted to the one person of Jesus Christ. So, foundational principle of Christology, genus idiomaticum. The next we introduce, we only got halfway through last week, page 57 at the very, very bottom, you'll see there, the genus myostaticum. Um, myostaticum, you can see majesty there. Idiomaticum, you can see like the, the root for one's own, like that is the, the nature's own attributes attributed to the person. Here, myostaticum, majesty, you can see. And so this is, this. now we zoom in on the interrelationship between the two natures. And in the genus myostaticum, we see that the divine nature interpenetrates, gives its powers and abilities to the human nature so that the human nature of Christ can do what a human nature in and of itself cannot do. The, probably the chief and easiest example of this is the transfiguration because it visualizes this very concept. Christ's very human face shines with supernatural light on the Mount of Transfiguration. The divine nature shines through the human nature. The divine nature empowers the human nature. Um, Christ, in his, in his human nature, as well as his divine nature, of course, um, shows up in the midst of the uh, upper room with all the locked doors in John chapter 20, for example. So this human body does what a human body normally cannot do because the divine nature of Christ shares its attributes with the human nature. So this is the genus myostaticum introduced on the bottom of 57, and we only got just a little ways in. So I, I would simply like to pick up there at the bottom of 57, fly through the first part, which we covered last week, and then get into the new material with some quotes from some uh, very foundational and important church fathers, including Cyril, Augustine, and Chrysostom. Without further ado, page 57, the bottom, the genus myostaticum concerns itself with the communication of divine attributes to the human nature of Christ. There's your most succinct definition. While the Reformed held, at least according to their own definitions, to the genus idiomaticum and the genus apotelismaticum, that's the third genus, we'll get to that in a moment, but scarce point is the Reformed, at least uh, according to their own definitions, they hold to the first and the third of these genera. They don't hold to the second. That's his point. So they rejected the genus myostaticum because it indicated that God's majesty and glory were communicated to the human nature. 
on what grounds would they deny this? How could anyone deny this? How could you make sense of the transfiguration of the John 20 account or any other account um, where Christ is doing a miracle of his own self, of his own person? Well, here's how. With the Reformed, it's always a philosophical, a rational limitation. It's probably, in terms of just the foundation or the presupposition, the parting of ways between Lutherans and Reformed is at this very fundamental point that Lutherans are going to follow the Word of God even if that contradicts, quote-unquote, philosophical axioms, rational axioms. The Reformed are going to say, no, those philosophical and rational axioms dictate our reading of Scripture. They can't be contradicted. And so Scripture must, I mean, the unfortunate effect of this is that Scripture must conform itself to these philosophical axioms. So this is precisely what you see as Scare continues. The philosophical axioms of Reformed theology which in practice become their theology's formal principle. That's what I was just describing. Deny that the finite is capable of any association with the infinite. Finitum non est capax infinity. And hence, the human nature of Christ, which is finite, is incapable of receiving any divine properties which are infinite by virtue of the personal union of the two natures in Christ. You see, so in Calvinism, you have the two natures so sealed off that the divine nature, I mean, a terrible statement, the divine nature cannot. <laughs> I mean, there's the, how, how could you restrict God? The divine nature cannot interpenetrate or express itself in and through, express its majesty and glory in and through the human nature because the finite can't contain it or else it ceases to be finite and you see it's a rational framework that the reformed are working with. Calvin taught, Scare continues, that the person of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, was of such an immeasurable essence that he could not be restricted to the human nature of Christ. What a terrible statement. So since he can't be restricted to the human nature, there's a place in which Christ exists where he does not exist as a human, or there's a way in which Christ exists where he, no long, where he doesn't exist as a man. So here you have two Christs. Here you have a legitimate Nestorianism because you have a Christ who is uh, restricted to the human nature and a Christ who is not restricted to the human nature. Two Christs. A spiritual Christ, quote-unquote, to use kind of American terms, and a and a physical Christ, an incarnate Christ. By the way, once you grasp this, you see this all the time in Christendom, not just the Reformed, but sort of broadly American evangelicalism. They just, I mean, if you ever ask them, they'll just stare at you like, uh, like a cow staring at the sky or something. It's like that it just doesn't even register. But in, their, in the piety, in, in the uh, hymnody, in the prayers, one very quickly understands that the consensus view is this idea that Christ is spiritually present but not bodily present. He is bodily present up in heaven only and spiritually present here on earth. So that is effectively reformed Christology. It's effectively universal in the American evangelical church 
and it's entirely Nestorian. It would, this would be utterly condemned by the ancient church fathers. Uh, what is just taken for granted here on American soil would be condemned as Nestorian heresy, precisely because you have a Christ who is present here on earth without a body and a Christ who is present up in heaven with a body. That is by definition to Christ. So, a big deal in our context. And I think that that's why scares take so much time in these chapters and in others, uh, really going after the Reformed, because the Reformed, uh, the evangelical, more broadly, milieu is the one in which we live here in America. So, Picking up after footnote 14 there in the text, Scare continues, contrary to this view, contrary to the Calvinist position we've just been discussing, the Lutherans held that there is a complete incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from his incarnation, there is no saving knowledge of God. The Lutheran position was summarized in the phrase, Logos non extra carnum. Here's the interpretation roughly. Apart from the flesh, there is no existence of the Word, uh, that is, the Son of God. For Lutherans, the genus myostaticum meant that the divine attributes not only were assigned to the human nature, but were operative in and through it. All right, so what's, what's the implication? The implication is these oft-quoted uh, quips from Luther that I know of no other God than he who is incarnate. I know of no other God than he who is crucified. Um, it is a, a reticence based on Scripture, in fact, a refusal based on Scripture to view God in any way apart from the incarnate one, Jesus Christ. And it is even precisely in and through the incarnate one, this Jesus Christ, that we come to know the Father. You remember Philip in John chapter 14, show us the Father, he says to Jesus, and it will be enough. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Philip, have I, have I, been with you so long and still you do not know me. I and the Father are one. To, you know, to see me is to see the Father. You can go check this out for yourself in John 14, but it's definitive. It's definitive. So we don't have a God who is not incarnate in this sense. Um, the, the revelation of God, the self-revelation of God is in the person of Jesus Christ and only in his person true God and true man in one person, do we come to know who the Father is? Now, of course, the Father is not incarnate, but it is only through the incarnate God that we come to know the not incarnate God, namely the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens our eyes to Christ and who he is through the Holy Scriptures. So it's not as though we don't have a a third article of the creed, a Holy Spirit uh, theology it's simply put, the Holy Spirit is the light that enlightens Christ, and Christ enlighten, is the light that enlightens the Father. And so through this economy of the Trinitarian action, we come to see the revelation of God and to begin to know who He is over and against the imagination of our hearts, 
over and against the delusions created by the devil, the world, the false church, and our own sinful nature. All right, well, enough on that. Let's get on to the church fathers to this point. So where we left off with Scare, just a little bit before that indented quotation of St. Cyril, thus the human nature of Christ is to be worshipped and adored because it subsists in the person of the Son of God. Yeah, so what does all of this theology mean quite concretely? Here's the question. Can you, should you, is it right to worship the body of Jesus? What would be the objections to that? The objections would be, well, his body is a creature, is it not? His body itself is not God. His body itself is of the Virgin Mary. So his body is material. So should we worship his body or not? Now, if you reject the genus myostaticum, then the answer is no, because there is no divine nature that interpenetrates the human such that the human may be worshipped and adored. Where that is walled off, and you just have the divine nature as one thing entirely distinct from the human nature, which is another, you may not worship the human nature, or that would be idolatry. And so Scare is going to point out that those consistent Calvinists, those who are consistent in this way of denying the genus myostaticum in the Reformed camp, thus also deny that we ought to worship Christ in his body. Of course, this is a big problem, because how do you worship Christ apart from worshiping him in his body, particularly as the resurrected one? So you can see that as the incarnate one, as a little child, uh, the wise men come and worship him. And they don't, they don't make this distinction and say, oh, Mary, I hope you know we're simply worshiping the divine nature right now, not the human nature, you see. No, they're worshiping the one Christ. And you'll find, too, that um, people fall at Jesus' feet and worship him. Mary grabs his, grabs his feet uh, after he's resurrected uh, in the garden. Thomas, upon touching uh, the Lord's wounds, says, My Lord and my God, and worships him. Uh, the glimpses of the heavenly worship were given. Um, they're worshiping the man, Christ Jesus, the one enthroned, the one who is, uh, has the appearance of the Lamb, and they're, and, and they're all worshiping him. They're not making a distinction there, like, you know, pardon us, we're just worshiping your divine nature, not your human nature. You can't do it. It's one Christ. And the divine interpenetrates the human such that the only orthodox and proper thing to do is to worship and adore the human. Uh, the say, I'm not going to complicate matters, but the same thing comes to a head in discussion of the Lord's Supper. You know, do you worship, honor, and adore Christ in the Supper? Well, if you hold to the genus myostaticum, you have no problem. If you understand that the two natures are so joined in one person that to worship the human in Christ is to worship the divine in Christ, uh, then you have no problem here. But the Reformed, because they reject this, do have problems. That's what we're going to see spelled out here. Um, so once more, because this is such a foundational principle, and this is really where the, this is how to make all this com complex you know, heady stuff, kind of, the rubber hits the road. 
thus the human nature of Christ is to be worshipped and adored because it subsists in the person of the Son of God. Scare continues, To demonstrate the antiquity of their position, the Lutherans appended the catalog of testimonies to the Book of Concord. If you have a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, which you should even if you're listening and you're not a Lutheran, because this is a fantastic Christian resource, period. Doctrinal, devotional, defines what it means to be Lutheran, defines what it means, frankly, to be small c Catholic, and then has this beautiful catalog of testimonies attached. Uh, in, and basically what this is doing is, is, in the text proper, the Lutherans are showing that we teach what the, what the apostles of Christ teach. And then this, uh, this appendix, this appended uh, document, this catalog of testimonies, says also, look, our teaching on Christ is exactly what the church fathers have taught. And it's, a, it's this massive list of quotations on various Christological topics perfectly in line with what the Lutherans teach. And you'll see that as a Reformed person, you won't be able to agree with the church fathers. You won't be able to agree with the way the scriptures speak. I mean, if there's a reason to go from Reformed or Evangelical into Lutheran, Christology is amongst the absolute highest. I, I would even say it is the highest reason, it is the best reason to become Lutheran, is Lutherans understand Christology in the way of the apostolic scriptures and in the way of the, church, of the Orthodox Church Fathers. And this is, this is available, the evidence is available to anyone who has $25 or whatever it is to buy the Book of Concord, Reader's Edition, and see this for yourself. The second reason uh, to move from Reform to Evangelicalism is frankly the sacraments. To not allow yourself to be cut off by rationalism, by this trick of the devil, from enjoying the ongoing active ministry of the resurrected Christ Jesus in our midst, where he is present tense working on us in and through the sacraments. And all you have to do is check your reason and philosophy at the door and decide you're going to believe the word of Jesus and receive it as a little child and simply take it as it is. And what opens to you is indescribable. New vistas, new worlds, new ways of thinking, unimaginable treasures of Christ present with us. The scriptures open themselves and you see that Old and New Testament alike are deeply and thoroughly sacramental. The roots of baptism, for example, the roots of confession, absolution, the roots of the Lord's Supper go all the way back to the, to the depths of the New Testament and are seen all the way throughout it so that suddenly when Christ gives these things, the thought that these are symbolic, are, are, you could not have such a thought. You could not have such a thought that at the end, at the climax of all of this root, at the roots and, and growth and the, the tree blossoming and bringing forth fruit, it would just be symbolic, pretend, make-believe, empty. Uh, no, that's, that's got to be one of the greatest tricks the devil's ever pulled in the church to get men to believe this. The fullness in Christ Jesus is the culmination and climax 
of all these things, of the riches of the Old Testament scriptures. And it's given for us as a living. All these, uh, all these people in the evangelical church are questing for a relationship with Jesus and for an experience of Jesus. Well, they've turned their back on the very means that our Lord Jesus himself has instituted to have this relationship with him, namely his sacraments, to have this experience with him, namely the sacraments. And, it's, and so in pushing all this away, in pushing Jesus away, then they invent for themselves all of these pseudo-sacraments, you know, the worship experience, quote-unquote, where you've got to have laser light shows and smoke machines and really emotive, emotionally driven music and everyone, you know, having this smarmy kind of internal experience in their hearts. You just, find, you just find zero of this, zero of this in the Old or New Testament scriptures. But what you do find is deeply, deeply sacramental theology, deeply sacramental piety. And you see that go seamlessly into the New Testament church, into the early church and, and on forward so that... Uh, so that it is precisely the experience of the crucified and living Lord Jesus, presence in our midst, revealing and giving himself to us in the sacraments. Um, and Christology goes hand in hand with this, as we are seeing in spades here from, from Dr. Scare, as it goes with your Christology, so it goes for your sacramentology. As it goes for your sacramentology, so it goes for your, your Christology. So. Again, if you just simply stick with the text of Scripture, your Reformed evangelical Christology will be broken, and in, in, place, of, in place of that, you'll have, uh, you'll have what cannot be broken. You'll have the words of God and the Christology of the ancient church. So, the, so sorry for that long discourse, but um, just worthwhile. Uh, if you don't have a book of Concord, grab it if for no other reason than for this catalog of testimonies from which Scare is going to uh, quote. So, without further ado, Cyril's On the Incarnation is approvingly cited, and here's a quote from St. Cyril. The Word introduced himself into that which he was not, in order that the nature of man also might become what it was not. Ah, there's the key. You can't have that if you're reformed and you deny the genus uh, myostaticum. The Word, capital W, introduced himself into that which he was not, namely human nature, in order that the nature of man also might become what it was not, resplendent by its union with the grandeur of the divine majesty, which has been raised beyond nature rather than that it has cast the unchangeable God beneath its nature. Well, you can't say it more beautifully than he said it, but the incarnation does not limit God. It expands man. Where the incarnation limits God, you have such foolishness like God is locked up at the right hand, Christ is locked up at the right hand of God and can't come down sacramentally, but we can ascend to God in our hearts. I mean, what, what rubbish, what arrogance. We can, but Christ can't. But this is exactly what happens when you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable Christologically as the Reformed and Evangelicals do. 
you end up, the incarnation ends up binding gods and binding the divine nature so that it has to work within the strictures of the human nature. Well, if a divine nature has to work within the strictures of the human nature, in what way is, does it remain divine? It doesn't. The divine is effectively limited entirely to the human and thus is identical, indistinguishable from the human. It's a fine way of de-incarnating God. Now, the flip side of this, as Cyril so brilliantly, so beautifully points out, is that the incarnation isn't about limiting the divine nature. The incarnation is about expanding the human nature. The Word introduced Himself into that which He was not in order that the nature of man also might become what it is not. That human nature might be elevated above above its finite, regular capacities. We might even say also above its fallen capacities. Uh, so uh, Cyril con continues, resplendent by its union with the grandeur of divine majesty. That's the human nature or the nature of man made resplendent. Look at the transformation. Made resplendent by its union with the grandeur of the divine majesty. I mean, there again, just concretely in your head, picture the transfiguration. You've got it which has been raised beyond nature. So the nature of man has been raised beyond nature rather than that it has cast the unchangeable God beneath its nature. Yeah. So what dominates? I mean, that might be another way of putting it, a rather American way of putting it. What dominates? Which nature dominates the Christological equation? For the Reformed, it's the human nature. It chains up God's hands. It chains up the hands of the divine nature so that he simply cannot, I mean, what a terrible statement, cannot fill in the blank. But as Cyril points out, that's not the incarnation. The incarnation is not the divine nature being restricted by the human. It's the divine nature expanding the human, giving unto the human what the human doesn't in and of itself and by itself have. And that is the, that is the whole Christian life. That is the church, that is the Christian life, that is the life which is to come, that is the resurrection, that is our final state. This is everything. I mean, if you reject it at this point, you reject everything. Yeah, the whole cosmos looks different if you go reformed on this point. And it looks dark and limited and rational and bound. Whereas the incarnation, you have the divine nature transforming, transfiguring the human nature, transforming and transfiguring all of creation of which humanity is the crown, making and bringing forth a new heavens and a new earth by virtue of the word become flesh. I think this is precisely what John's prologue is about but everything shines like the sun in that vision. And reason is a glorious light and tool, but it's not a limiting principle. It's not a limiting principle.
such a beautiful, beautiful thing we have in Christ Jesus. And that these words of St. Cyril show us. Well, let's carry on. The Reformed are not totally consistent in their position on the personal or hypostatic union, as Pieper points out. What does that mean? Well, we'll see here. Some claim that divine honor is due the human nature because of its union with the divine, and others more consistently call this idolatrous. Again, I won't go through the machinery of this with you. Hopefully it's clear enough. Um, but again, it, it's just, with Reformed, you actually have this wrestle of like, well, can we worship the human, can we worship Christ in his body? Can we worship the human nature? Could we bow at the communion rail? I mean, could we do any of this? Uh, a, a consistent position for the Reformed, a logically consistent position, is no. Is no. Um, but some of them, some of them do try to retain this honoring of the human nature, inconsistent with their logic. Scare continues. Burkhoff belongs to those moderate Reformed theologians who can speak of prayers being offered to Christ as the God-man, but is very careful to point out that such honor does not belong to the human nature as such, but only to the divine logos. This hedging on the part of the Reformed <laughs> demonstrates that they do not consider Christ to be one person or that, his or that his human nature shares in the attributes of the divine nature. Right, because if you're going to separate this out, I mean, you're going to say the honor doesn't belong to the human nature as such, but only to the divine logos. You've got two Christ. You've got one who's worthy of honor uh, and one who's not. Whereas Lutherans, along with Scripture, along with the Church Fathers, just say, there's one Christ, true God, true man. All of him is to be honored, worshipped, adored, received, loved. It's so much more simple and so much more beautiful. For, I mean, that's one of the deepest ironies. For Reformed theology and all its sort of like tight systemization and tight rationalism, it really ends up becoming quite irrational. And what begins as beauty really in the end becomes this ugly man-made machine. Nothing organic, nothing shining, nothing like what you see in the, in the small c Catholic position, the apostolic position. All right, well, continuing on. Lutherans understand that the incarnation so closely united the two natures in one person that it becomes impossible to understand the human nature as separate or autonomous from the divine. I love that line. Impossible to understand the human nature as separate or autonomous from the divine. I mean, you can make a distinction, obviously. We've made that very clear, especially in the genus idiomaticum that's preceded. You can make a distinction, but you can't make uh, a separation. You can't make the human nature autonomous from the divine. The human nature may and must be worshipped. The catalog of testimonies cites Augustine in requiring the worship of the flesh of Christ. Um, here's, mm. yeah, here's the footnote 19. And Christ received flesh of the flesh of Mary, and because he walked here in this very flesh, 
he also gave this very flesh to be eaten for us for our salvation. But no one eats that flesh unless he has first worshipped it. So again, here in Augustine, you can see the close, uh, close connection between Christology and sacramentology, what, what you believe about Christ, what you believe about the Lord's Supper. So there's Augustine. Scare continues. Again, Chrysostom. Okay, so we've had Cyril, Augustine, and Chrysostom, three heavy hitters to say the least. Chrysostom speaks of the Magi worshiping the body of Jesus, a point I brought up earlier. And he is exegetically correct, even according to modern standards, as Matthew 2.11 speaks of their worship of the child, Pideon. So if you go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, they are said to worship the child, not the divine nature, not the divine nature inside the child or apart from the child, but that child is who they worship, the Pideon. Scare continues, the union of the divine and human natures in Jesus is so intimate that the term uh, perichoresis, perichoresis, which means interpenetration, was used. So you've heard me use that, I think, interpenetrating and interpenetrate as I talk. It's a really helpful way to think about it, the divine nature shining through, interpenetrating the human nature, um, perichoresis. Perichoresis was also used of the relationship of the persons of the Trinity. It would not be inappropriate to use the Lutheran sacramental terminology in, with, and under, used of the relationship of the body of Christ to the sacramental bread, in a discussion of the unity of the natures in Christ. Analogies do exist among the doctrines of the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the Sacrament. Just as it is impossible to speak of one person of the Trinity separately without reference to the others, so it is impossible to speak of one nature in Christ without the other. The division of the human nature from the divine nature and of the body of Christ from the bread is precisely the error made by the Reformed. Yeah, so just shows you a whole different way of theology that, as I've, as I've mentioned, just takes you to two entirely different places, two entirely different views of God and of creation and of humanity. That's why I don't understand and why almost, I, I don't think I've ever met a Lutheran who understands this, why the Reformed seem to always want to sidle up to Lutherans and convince us Lutherans that we're not that far apart. I don't understand this. I don't understand if it's insecurity on the part of the Reformed or what it is. Just being rational about it, which you would think the Reformed would excel at and apply rather consistently, just being rational about it. I mean, these different theologies are, I mean, they're, they're binary. They're mutually exclusive. They're completely different. There's, not, there's nothing remotely connected about them other than the verbiage, which is defreighted of its meaning and freighted with new meaning on the part of the Reformed. There's, there's nothing in common uh, in terms of Christology, sacramentology. And then, as I said, by, by implication, then all the rest. I mean, for crying out loud, the entire, the entire cosmos, the entire theological vision for the Reformed is shaped by 
God uh, ahead of time for ordaining some to uh, election and, and some to damnation, and then Christ is, is only necessary because there's got to be a mechanism to save the elect. Christ fits within the frame. I mean, for Lutherans, the starting point and frame is Christ himself. And why? Because that's the biblical starting point and frame. The doctrine of election has to be understood within the frame of Christ. Otherwise, it's not understood biblically. So I don't understand. I don't think any of us do. I don't know. I'd love to hear your answer. If you've got a great answer, you're listening online, you've got a great answer, shoot me an email. I may not be able to respond back to you because in these crazy times, phone calls, texts, emails, it's just overwhelming. It's how you do ministry in this day and age, but it's, it's impossible to keep up. But yeah, I'd love to know an answer to that, why the Reformed always want to sidle up to the Lutherans and, and assure us that we're not that far apart when quite evidently, according to our own systematics, uh, we couldn't be further apart. I mean, as you see when it just, well, and as you will see, as Scarrow point out, when it comes to just Christology flat out, and when it comes to the vicarious atonement flat out, there's frankly more similarity between Rome and Lutherans than Lutherans and Reformed. I mean, there's huge differences between Lutherans and uh, Roman Catholics, obviously. Obviously. But not so much on the point of not so much on the point of Christology. As we'll see, the point with the vicarious atonement is that Lutheran, Lutherans see that done on the cross, and then the benefits distributed at the Lord's Supper. Whereas the the Roman Catholics see that done in the Lord's Supper, which they change to the sacrifice of the Mass. Now, we'll, we'll spend some time on that. That's a big issue and a big bone of contention. It just simply does not fit the language of Jesus or the Scriptures. But still, when it just comes to Christology, there's Roman Catholics have derivated, haven't derivated nearly as far from the Apostolic Scriptures and the Church Fathers than have the Reformed. Well, back to it. Sorry for that digression. Very bottom of 59. By virtue of the incarnation, the human nature of Christ has both human and divine attributes, but of course possesses these attributes in different ways. The Reformed have attempted to paint the Lutherans into a corner by pointing out their alleged inconsistency in not ascribing to the divine nature human attributes. There would be an inconsistency only if the divine and human natures of Christ are considered equal parts of a mathematical equation. So see, even, even in the Reformed critique of the Lutheran position, it's like they can only critique us on the basis of this mathematical equation or this overly rationalistic way of thinking. You know how, if you've ever met like a scientist, they can't, I, don't, I shouldn't say it that, that way. There are good Christian scientists that understand that science is, is a tool and it's useful insofar as it's useful, and then it's to be set aside for other forms of epistemology, other forms of receiving knowledge. But a dyed-in-the-wool scientist, where scientism is their religion, they can't see anything else. Science is the only tool. It's the only light. It's the only way of seeing truth. 
there's this disturbing parallel in reform where it's like rationalism. What's rational? What fits axiomatic principles? That's the only light. And just as just as reason or science, these these things, they're tools. If they become everything, if they become the epistemology, if they become the only way of knowing or perceiving or receiving truth, what a sad, limited, limited thing. If you've ever met a a, you know, a scientist who's completely invested in sci- scientism, you know, how, uh, you know how limited their framework is, and at the same time how arrogant they are. That's uh, such a bizarre thing. The more narrow you become, the more arrogant you become. Well... <clears throat> Continuing at the top of page 60, mathematical logic has nothing to do with the incarnation. We are not dealing with equal parts in the incarnation because the initiative belongs and remains with the divine nature. Right. So in the genus Myostaticum, what we're talking about is the inner penetration of the, you know, of the, uh, of the divine nature in and through the human. So the dominance, so to speak, the majesty, is with the divine nature. So this isn't a mathematical equation where we've got two equal parts and they have to equally share their attributes, as if you could do some sort of like physics experiment here or mathematical equation here and both sides must balance out. That's That's not the point at all of this teaching or this principle that comes to us through the scriptures. As the transfiguration shows, uh, the divine nature is, is dominant. As the resurrection shows, the divine nature is dominant. As Christ depicted in glory in Revelation, for example, shows, uh, the divine nature is dominant. It, it interpenetrates, presses through uh, the human nature so that the human nature, in the words of Cyril, becomes more than what it is. Isn't that, isn't that precisely the point? why God became flesh so that we would become more than what we are, that he became like us so that we might become like him. Isn't this just, fun? Isn't this just Christianity 101? But you can't, you can't hold to it if you, if you bound yourself to the reform principles. All right, Scare continues, for Lutherans, the divine attributes belong essentially to the divine nature and by virtue of the personal union and the consequential communication of attributes to the human nature. The Reformed assume only the former and explicitly deny the latter. In order to compensate for this lack of divine attributes in Jesus' human nature, Burkhoff, again, he's sort of one of the foremost contemporary-ish Reformed theologians, systematicians, Burkhoff, in exemplary Reformed fashion, has spoken of the, nat- the human nature of Christ as receiving special gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Which, again, the problem there, the problem here, you, you know, put, it, put your finger down because I'll pick right back up here in this, in this space, but the problem here is then, in what sense is Jesus any different from any of the other prophets who healed the sick or cast out demons or raised the dead? They did this not by any power in and of themselves, but by the Holy Spirit. How is Jesus then any different? He's not in Reformed theology. I think that's why Scare says, you know, this is the, how does he put it, the typical 
reformed move. Yeah, exemplary reformed fashion. All right, so Jesus can't do any miracles in and of himself because he's bound by his human nature, and the human nature can't do miracles. So it's got to actually be the Holy Spirit outside of him doing these things, just like the Holy Spirit was doing these things outside of Elijah when he raised the widow's son or you know, whatever example you want to use. It's, it's terrible theology. It's just terrible theology. But this is where you land if you're, if you're going to be reformed. Thus, the human nature of Christ, Scare continues, has superior intelligence and is incapable of sinning. Um, and this is what Burkhoff says. The human nature of Christ has superior in intelligence and is incapable of sinning. Christ is even capable of receiving adoration. But Burkhoff carefully avoids seeing him as an object of worship. Burkhoff's position closely resembles the Roman one, which sees Jesus' divine nature as worthy of receiving worship, latria, but the human nature <laughs> worthy of only deep devotion, hyperdulia, an honor also bestowed on the Virgin Mary. Yeah, so here you have latria, I mean, this made-up distinction by the Roman Catholics to try to convince their people that they don't commit idolatry when they, uh, so even though they use the word worship, they have these three distinctions, um, latria, uh, dulia, and hyperdulia. You have two of them here. Yeah, Jesus' divine nature as worthy of receiving latria. Mary gets hyperdulia, as does the body of Jesus, and then the rest of the saints only get dulia, I think. That's the distinction. So yes, we, we worship the saints, but we don't really. It's dulia, you see. We worship Mary, but we don't really. It's only hyperdulia. It's just the typical sophism that Luther and all just earthy Christians everywhere reject about Rome and reject about the intellectual scholastic West and convince ourselves we're, we're not doing the very thing we're doing as long as we give it a different name. What dark times. Okay, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, a scare points out, at least on this point, Christologically, the, the Roman Catholics do go off the rails. Okay, so uh, next paragraph. The characteristic Lutheran understanding of Christ's human nature is made clear when the various modes of Christ's presence are discussed. This is a lot to jam in there. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot to jam in, a single, uh, he, we've done prophet, priest, and king, we've done the three genera, and now we're going to just off the cuff introduce this. Uh, this is a jam-packed chapter. Uh, I, I don't even know that we're going to get to the Apatellus Modicum today, but be that as it may. So now we're going to introduce the modes of presence as articulated. There are different ways of articulating the mode of presence. Some of you who have been present in class with me know that, um, while well, I, I certainly... Uh, you know, subscribe to this and have no problem with this. I think there may be some other linguistic ways, some other conceptual ways to, to make this all the more clear. And I've, I've done that for you and shared that with you in the past. Um, but be that as it may, it's not really the point. Here, Scare wants to talk about the modes of presence, uh, the way they come to us in the formula of Concord, well and good. So let's take a look at these then. So the characteristic... Lutheran understanding of Christ's human nature is made clear when the various modes of Christ's presence are discussed. Local, illocal, omnipresent, and sacramental. 
Now, again, this can strike you as sophism if you don't understand the methodology and the movement here. So the methodology and movement is from Scripture, and then we simply put a label on the scriptural data so that we have a fast, shorthand way of talking it, uh, talking about it. Again, the Trinity, you don't find that word in Scripture. You find the data, and we simply say Trinity so that we have a shorthand way of speaking of it. Same thing here when we talk about local, illocal, omnipresent, sacramental. When we talk about these modes of presence, these are just words. What we see is the text of Scripture, Jesus saying how he's present with us in these different ways, and we're going to attach words so that we have a shorthand a way of speaking about these things. Okay, so... The formula of Concord, you can go look at this if you have a book of Concord. SD means solid declaration, the eighth article, paragraphs 93 through 104. In describing the first three presences, okay, so namely the local, illocal, and omnipresent, adopts Luther's position. First of all, Christ is said to be capable of ordinary local Presence. So here's the first type, ordinary local presence. That's like Christ in his ministry on earth, Christ uh, crucified on the cross, I, I mean, with nails going through his arms. It's, uh, it's just a normal presence. You and I are locally present. Uh, we displace air with our bodies, for example. You jump in water, you displace water. That's an ordinary local presence. All right? So there's local. Scare continues. Christ was confined to one place at a time during the years before the resurrection. <clears throat> Secondly, he exercised what the formula calls the incomprehensible, excuse me, incomprehensible spiritual mode of presence, according to which he neither occupies nor vacates space, but penetrates every creature wherever he wills. Okay? And this is really the second. This is an illocal. You could define this as an illocal presence. Um, So the incomprehensible spiritual mode of presence, according to which he neither occupies uh, nor vacates space, but penetrates every creature wherever he wills. Thirdly, the human nature of Christ is present wherever God is. This is called the divine heavenly mode, or as Scare has said earlier, this then is the omnipresence. Christ is present wherever God is. It's omnipresence. So this is the divine heavenly mode. And then fourthly, there is the sacramental presence. And this is identical to the second mode. So you see how the second mode is illocal? So this is uh, identical to the second mode, but you simply, because Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, given and shed for you to eat and drink, we call it a sacramental presence. All right, so these are four modes of presence. And again, it's a fine way of describing them. It's a very clear way of describing these modes of presence. So, uh, yeah, just to finish the thought, fourthly, there is the sacramental presence identical to the second mode, which proceeds from the matrix of the third, uh, the third being the omnipresence, and the divine and heavenly mode, but is not identical to it. So there's scare. Uh, Not really taking us along for the ride point by point, but just showing us that all of these modes of presence actually interrelate with one another. um, And in some respects, flow from, one from another, uh, with the omnipresence, of course, being at the height of it all. 
Scare continues, the Lutherans do not derive their understanding of Christ's presence in the sacramental bread and wine from the genus Myostaticum, but recognize this genus is ultimately connected with it and provides support for it. Where, in other words, we don't, div we don't come to the conclusion of the Lord's Supper that Christ's body and blood are present there for us to eat and drink on the basis of Christology. No, that's not the Lutheran position. Some foolish Lutherans in the 20th century argue that way, ELCA theologians who don't know their own heritage. But that is not the Lutheran position. The Lutheran position on the Lord's Supper is not on the basis of Christology, but on the basis of the words of Christ. Uh, take, eat, take, drink. This is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your, of your sins. There's the, there's the basis. There's where our understanding of the Lord's Supper is derived from our Lord's own words. Then the Christology, as Luther says, um, just is intimately connected with these words of Christ and provides support for these words of Christ. But we don't derive our position on the Lord's Supper from Christology. We derive our position on the Lord's Supper from Christ's words. Our Christology just so happens to fit that. The, the Catholic Christology just so happens to fit that. All right, Scare continues. Wherever God is, we're going to try to press through and uh, just get done with this genus. So next week, it's only the Apatellus modicum. Wherever God is, the human nature is also there. Ah, wherever God is, the human nature is also there. Not an easy position rationally, but an, a very easy position theologically because the divine nature and the human nature are in one Christ. Wherever Christ is, there he is in both natures. So if Christ is omnipresent, both natures are omnipresent. Wherever God is, the human nature is also there. Christ's omnipresence, according to his human nature, is not to be confused with his sacramental presence. Again, you're not communing every time you inhale air or something like that. Still, the former is theologically foundational for the latter. He just simply means the fact that the, that the human nature is elevated to the point where it can be anywhere certainly serves then the Lord's Supper, serves our understanding where Christ then says, this is my body, this is my blood. That's simply scarce point there. Continuing on rapidly, I apologize. The human nature also possesses omniscience and omnipotence. The presence of Christ in the supper is not only dependent upon his omnipresence, but also his omnipotence. Quoting from the formula of Concord, Thus our faith in this article concerning the true presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper is built upon the truth and the omnipotence of the true and eternal God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Inherent, to, er, inherent in the genus Myostaticum is a tension which confessional Lutheran theology does not attempt to resolve. Through this genus, the human nature possesses divine and human attributes, which appear to oppose each other. According to his divine nature, Christ knows all things, but according to his human nature, he has limited knowledge and is said to have grown in wisdom and stature. Luke 2.40 He knows all things, still he must be taught. I, I could go off here on, an, on a tangent. I'm just not going to be able to because of time. Um, but let, suffice it to say, you can drive this point home in so many different ways. 
I mean, any to anywhere there's an opposition between the human nature and the divine nature, you're going to run into this paradoxical statement. Christ both could die and couldn't die. Christ both knew everything and didn't know everything. He was both singularly present and omnipresent. I mean, you can just go on and on. Anytime there's a, div, a, a, a head-to-head difference between one of the human attributes and one of the divine attributes, you come up with these paradoxical, puzzling statements. It's where, really, if someone understands Christology, you can answer baiting, twisted questions in order to make just about anyone a heretic if they answer the question, uh, because they're going to fall in, you know, you're just going to fall into error by the very fact that you're answering it. So, this is complex stuff. It's mysterious stuff. Well, duh, says Lutheran theology. Christ is above us. The incarnation is above us. These things are fundamentally incomprehensible. What we know, we only know because the scriptures have revealed. And the scriptures everywhere reveal things that puzzle us, that silence our reason and put it in check and put it in place, that leave God mysterious and incomprehensible. We know two truths. We don't know how to reconcile them. That's God's business. But we confess those two truths. I mean, frankly, that's, all of, that's just all of theology. Okay, sorry, I'm plowing along quickly because I want to get through this genus so that next week we have a blank slate. Now, Luther, concerning this quote of he knows everything and yet still has to grow in wisdom and stature, Luther says, the humanity of Christ, like that of any other holy and natural person, did not always think, say, wish, and notice all things as certain people make of him an all-powerful being, mixing and confusing the two natures and their work. Even as he did not always see, hear, and feel all things, so he did not always consider all things in his heart. But as God has led him and inspired him, he was full of grace and of wisdom and was available to evaluate and to teach. So, you know, there's no docetic view here. Lutherans are, are not docetists. It is a true humanity. It is a true human nature, no doubt about it. Scare continues, the tension between Christ's omnipotence according to his divine nature and his weakness according to the human nature is best demonstrated in his birth. On the one hand, he rules heaven and earth from his mother's arms, but on the other hand, he is completely dependent upon her for his life and sustenance. All kings do his will, but at his birth, he is a subject of Caesar Augustus and his life is endangered by the murderous King Herod. So what you can see Scare doing is just playing with the differences between the human and divine attributes in Christ. You can do this with any attribute and make it be completely paradoxical. Frankly, this is given to us that we marvel, that we rejoice and enjoy, that we receive the revelation, confess it faithfully, but realize in that very revelation, there's profound joy and incomprehensibility complete wonder in theology to worship a God who is higher than us, greater than us, uh, both comprehensible and incomprehensible to us. Anything less wouldn't be God. Anything that you could truly systematize or wrap your head around wouldn't be truly God. It's part of the disease of the Reformed. My last, you know, if, if you're Reformed and watching, this has probably been rather brutal for you. I hope you're still with us. But this would be my last salvo is, that's why Reformed are compulsively writing systematic treatises, just trying one more attempt to cross that final T and dot that final I so that you finally got your head around God and you were the one that did it. But as soon as you've wrapped your head around God, you can be assured that you no longer have him. As soon as you've written the perfect systematics, you can be sure that you've utterly failed because God cannot and will not be systematized. He is the living God. 
and he reveals himself to us. We confess what he reveals, but he is incomprehensible to us, greater than us.